Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, re-examining the disastrous Dieppe raid of August 1942, was the operation really about testing German defenses in Europe, as we've been led to believe for nearly 80 years? Or was something else afoot? This is one of the things that I think permeates the history of the Dieppe operation, was this essential question, what was this all about? And I think his answer on that particular day pretty much summed up the frustration for almost every man who was there, with the exception of those who would have been in the know, which would have been just a tiny handful of what Dieppe was all about. And that frustration has, you know, something really that's lasted for almost 70 years. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Today, August 19th, marks the 78th anniversary of a military disaster. The Dieppe Raid during the Second World War was one of the darkest chapters in Canada's military history, but it was also marked by great courage and helped lead to important lessons being learned. By the summer of 1942, the Second World War had been raging for almost three years and things looked pretty grim. Nazi Germany had pushed east deep into the Soviet Union, enemy forces were advancing in North Africa, and U-boats were making the Atlantic a deadly place for Allied shipping. The British Isles were the only Allied holdout after the Germans had invaded and occupied much of Western Europe. The continent's west coast was studded with enemy troops, machine guns, artillery, barbed wire, concrete pillboxes, and offshore obstacles. It truly was on its way to becoming Fortress Europe. So, on the morning of August 19, 1942, an Allied force of 300 ships, 800 aircraft, and 6,000 assault troops launched a one-day attack known as Operation Jubilee on the French port of Dieppe. Of the nearly 5,000 Canadians who embarked for the operation, only 2,210 returned to England, and many of these were wounded. There were 3,367 casualties, including 1,946 prisoners of war, 916 Canadians lost their lives. Military historian David O'Keefe has spent 15 years searching through the once classified and ultra-secret war files, and he believes he's identified the real purpose behind the Dieppe operation, and it reads like something out of a James Bond novel. It even involved James Bond's creator, Ian Fleming. 
David is the author of One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe. David, thanks for joining me. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm fine. How are you? Very well. And first of all, what was the official uh, rationale for that operation? Well, there were several, I guess, over the years. Number one was that they were attempting to test German defenses. Of course, Nazi Germany was at the the height of its power. I mean, it ran all of Europe from, you know, right right from the English Channel all the way to Moscow, and then it extended as far north as the Arctic Circle and down to North Africa. I mean, this was the apex of Hitler's power. So in this particular point in the summer of 1942, the Allies, and rather for what seemed to be mysterious reasons, put on a raid to test German defenses. At least, that was the standard notion. And then later on, there were various other notions after this turned into a disaster that were um, passed along as the reasons for it. And one of them being placating Stalin's calls for a second front. Another one was to seek out an air battle. And there were some that even suggested that this might have actually been a sacrificial mission from the get-go to show the Americans the futility of trying to launch a second front in 1942. You, you begin the uh, the book, uh, One Day in August, mm. the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe, from a, uh, with a quote from, an, uh, from a German interrog- interrogator mm-hmm. uh, who interrogated a young Canadian by the name of Major Brian McCool. Uh, uh, talk to us about that, that uh, inter- interrogator. Well, this is one of the things that I think permeates the historiography or the history of the Dieppe operation was this essential question, what was this all about? And I think his um, answer on that particular day pretty much summed up the frustration for almost every man who was there, with the exception of those who would have been in the know, which would have been just a tiny handful of what Dieppe was all about. And that frustration has something that, you know, something really that's lasted for almost 70 years. And the, and the interrogator asked McCool, mm-hmm. you know, "What were you trying to do?" Right, because this operation was this invasion was so large in scope, but but so essentially poorly prepared. What were you guys thinking? Well, that was the whole thing. I mean, even the Germans couldn't figure this out. Um, this was not an invasion like you saw two years later in Normandy. This was a one-day raid, or as Churchill would call it, a butcher-and-bolt operation. In other words, get in for one day, get out. But unlike the others that had been attempted so far up in Norway or even on the west coast of France, this one was much larger in scope. Usually the other ones were smaller, maybe 500 to 1,000 men. But this one came in significant force, not anywhere close to what they had in Normandy a couple of years later, but too big, if you will, to really be understood in the contemporary realm. Quote, this was too big for a raid and too small for invasion, end quote, said a puzzled German interrogator to a captured prisoner. What were you trying to do? The prisoner's response is quoted near the beginning of uh, David's One Day in August. He said, if you could tell me, I would be very grateful. David O'Keefe, we'll we'll get into how you connected the Dieppe raid uh, to the Allies, the Ally effort to to crack the Enigma code, um, you know, over the next uh, few few moments here. Mm -hmm. But, But where does it, where does this trail begin for you? When did you start to make these connections? Well, I guess it started about, uh, would have been almost 20 years ago, actually, this month, when I made my first discovery. And that was the document that started this whole journey. I was um, 
working in the British archives and came across a report that was recently released at that time and had formerly been ultra-classified, uh, in other words, above top secret. And the report had to do with the, the exploits of a very mysterious commando unit called the 30th Assault Unit or 30th Commando. And um, this was striking because this was the first time I'd ever heard of this unit. And let alone in this document, it lists what they were looking for in 1942, which was anything and everything that would have helped the, co the uh, codebreakers at Bletchley Park like Alan Turing. And also what really got me was in the fourth paragraph, one throwaway line that started the entire journey. As regards capture, the party at Dieppe did not reach its objective. And then suddenly I realized, well, I have one, you know, a document here about a commando unit raised specifically to pinch or steal anything to do with the Enigma machine. Now it's connected to Dieppe, one of Canada's greatest disasters, one of Canada's greatest tragedies, and also one of World War II's greatest mysteries. So that's really how it all began. I should mention that the that top secret document recently declassified that you just mentioned, uh, that's up on our, uh, visible on our, our HOA, our Hangout on Air, for those of you mm. uh, watching the live stream, or if you're not and you'd like to uh, to check it out, uh, you can see it later on the uh, the archived HOA at our YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. David O'Keefe here with us, one day in August. Uh, the Enigma machine, mm. and of course this is very timely, uh, with obviously the uh, the imitation game coming out, uh, yet no mention. I haven't seen the movie yet, though. I'm, I'm guessing no mention, obviously, of um, the role of uh, of Dieppe or the Canadian the uh, Canadian military effort no, in this pinch operation. Um, perhaps you know, had this document come to uh, to light a few years ago, maybe it would have made it into the movie. Uh, well, the, 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 you call it a pinch operation. Yeah. Explain what a pinch operation okay. is. A, a pinch operation, it comes from the British slang, pinch, to mean to steal or mm -hmm. swipe. And the idea was to get into uh, an enemy headquarters, an enemy ship, anywhere where you could come into contact with the kind of material you needed that would help the codebreakers at Bletchley. So not only were you interested in the machine itself, the Enigma machine, which in some cases was almost secondary, what you really needed were the instruction manuals, for lack of a better term. All the sheets, the coding, the settings, um, how to put the machine together on a particular day, how to set the particular key, kind of like stealing a whole list of PIN numbers for bank cards, if you would. Right. In other words, it's one thing to have the card, but unless you know what the PIN number is, you won't be able to use it. And that's what they were looking for. Okay, so once you saw a reference to this pinch operation connected to Dieppe, what was your next stage in unraveling this seven-decade-old mystery? Well, at first, you can imagine. I mean, it seemed to be, you know, rather outlandish when I thought of it. I mean, first of all, okay, this is fascinating. Um, this must be nothing more than a caboose on a train that was already leaving for Dieppe. But there was something in the back of the um, back of the uh, uh, report that really caught my imagination, and it said, "No raid should be laid on." specifically for signals intelligence or pinch operations, unless it's big enough to presuppose normal operational uh, objectives. In other words, if you are going to pinch, you have to make sure that it is done within a larger operation to make sure that your enemy, in this case the Germans, would never catch on. Is there anyone 
associated with the the, the planning, uh, the operation of of Dieppe that that's still alive. Well, unfortunately, at that level, no, not in the planning level. Everybody, as far as I know, has passed on. I was fortunate enough to actually find the last of 30th Assault Unit who was left alive, and he still is today. Unfortunately, he's he's succumbed to Alzheimer's now. Um, and that was Paul McGraw, who, after I continued or started my research, years later, I actually approached the British Navy, and I approached the Naval Historical Branch and basically you know, told them what I had found. And you have to understand that this unfolds almost like a jigsaw puzzle. In other words, there's so many pieces per year that are released. So it took about oh, good 14 to 15 years before I felt comfortable enough to actually approach the authorities and say, hey, look, this is what I'm working on. This is what the evidence shows. This is what it suggests. Would you be able to throw any light on it? And they basically took a look at it and said, you know what? I think you might be onto something here. And one of the historians left the room, came back in two minutes, and gave me a name and a number and said, look, you better talk to this guy. And I said, why? And he said, well, he's the last of the commandos that were at Dieppe. So sure enough, within a, you know, about a week, I was on a plane to Scotland, and we interviewed Paul McGraw, who was one of the last ones there. But unfortunately, because of the march of time, uh, the men who were responsible for planning, like Lord Louis Mountbatten or Hughes Hallett or even you know, Ham Roberts, the Canadian uh, general, they've all passed away many years ago. So how many uh, soldiers, uh, commandos, people that came ashore on April 19th, 1942, were in the know about the true uh, purpose of the operation? Well, it's very hard to say that anybody who actually came ashore would know the overall purpose. Remember, in, in, in the way military security is done, it's all stovepiped. It's all done on the need to know. So you're told as much as you need to know to get your immediate objective done. Compartmentalization. You got it. This is yeah. how big so, secrets I mean, are kept quiet. Know, if a commando storms ashore and grabs the material, he would know that this is important. He may not know why it's important. But he knows that this is what he's after, and it, they have to get it out quickly. Now, would he have known about Bletchley Park? Would he have known about cryptography? No, not at all, because that would have been the idea of compartmentalization for security purposes. And are there any clues in any of the documents that you've uncovered um, relating to the, the existence of this material at this port, Dieppe? Well, the interesting part is when you lay on a raid like this, um, you basically go on the intelligence estimates you have. And I was able to find the estimate for what they suspected was German naval headquarters in the harbor. Now, there were two big targets they were after. One were the trawlers, the ships that would have used the Enigma machine and would have had all their code books. But those code books would have been good for the current month and maybe the next month. The real pot of gold in Dieppe was the naval, uh, naval headquarters, because not only would you have the current month and next month, but you would have had a safe containing all the code material for the next six months, maybe a year, all ready to be issued to the ships. So you can see what they were attempting to do. Now, in this particular case, they located it in a mysterious hotel in the harbor called the Hotel Moderne. And this is what they suspected, British intelligence is, uh, suspected, was the pot of gold, if you will. Why did they fail? 
Well, that goes down to the entire operation. I mean, one of the most remarkable moments in this entire research journey was when I found out um, after pressing the Government Code and Cipher School to release the material, they finally agreed to release what would be called the policy papers to show that these pinch operations were not just these ad hoc units thrown on to operations, but they actually had three categories of these. In other words, there was a doctrine for this, a playbook. And so they would have what they call a pinch by chance. In other words, in the middle of a battle, you stumble across something, you find it fascinating, you pick it up, you bring it back. Obviously, Dieppe wasn't that. And then there was two other categories, a pinch by opportunity. In other words, we have a battle that's going to be raging or an operation that's going to be laid on, and it looks like we're going to come into contact with what we're after or what we're going for, so you better be prepared. And the third one was actually a pinch by design. In other words, we have a huge problem, we need to solve it, and let's launch a raid or another type of operation to make sure we get what we're coming for. So Dieppe so was pinch by day, design. That is what Dieppe turns out to be, a pinch by design. Explain the importance uh, of breaking the Enigma code mm-hmm. in terms of tracking the movements of these, you know, these deadly U-boats. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you have to understand, I mean, as we know, information is power. And in World War II, the lifeblood of the entire Allied war effort was the control of the sea lanes, particularly when the United States of America comes into the war in December of 1941. I mean, uh, you know, most of you know most of Churchill's cabinet is jumping up and down when the United States comes in at first because they realize that the you know the economic potential that the United States has. The only problem is it's not going to help if the tanks, the guns, the manpower, the raw materials are stuck in the United States. You've got to get them across U-boat infested waters. And one of the ways of doing this in an economic way and relatively safe way is to make sure that you can break into the German codes and ciphers, which lets you know it, to a relative degree of, degree of certainty where they're located, what their strengths, their weaknesses, their hopes, their dreams, their desires, etc. are. And as a result, you can reroute your convoys away from danger, or in some cases, if you've developed the capability, you can run right into the U-boats and try to hunt them down and kill them. But in 1942, just after the U.S. Uh, enters the war, it's something what you alluded to earlier. The Allies had had great success breaking into the Enigma in 1941, thanks to Turing and thanks to earlier pinch raids. And so the Germans started to catch on a little bit. And now they introduced a new form of Enigma machine, which was basically a bastardized version of the three-rotor, and this was called a four-rotor machine. And instantly, um, starting in February 1942, the Operational Intelligence Center and Bletchley Park were completely blacked out. So in other words, suddenly they only had minuscule information about the whereabouts of U-boats. Yeah, they were, they were roaming around unimpeded. Yes, essentially. And I mean, you have sinkings that are going through the roof, particularly off the American coast in uh, the first few months of 1942. My uncle was, uh, was, uh, was uh, on, the, on the corvettes that were escorting a lot of these Allied merchant vessels. Yeah, they were. I mean, the Canadians were running this operation out of Halifax, and then, of course, the Americans were sort of stumbling through the first couple of months because they didn't adopt the convoy system until later in 1942. And meanwhile, the the British now are fighting against the Japanese. They suddenly have, you know, the Germans they have to watch out for all through the Atlantic, and now the Japanese in the Indian Ocean. So one of the greatest force multipliers that they had 
was what they would call ultra, this classified process of breaking into enemy communications and then exploiting it. So in other words, it's kind of like reading, you know, four or five cards in your opponent's poker hand, if it will. David, you sifted through something like 150,000 pages of documents to unravel this mystery. And again, the thesis here is that the Dieppe raid, although botched as it was and tragic as it was, it was an attempt to seize the Enigma Code. At what point did the name Ian Fleming... Of course, the author of the James Bond books. What At what point did uh, you stumble onto Ian Fleming's connection to this? Well, it's kind of remarkable. I guess you could say Fleming's connection was right there from the start because this 30th assault unit that I mentioned to you earlier um, was actually raised by Ian Fleming, which is one of the reasons why I kind of hesitated at the beginning back in 1995 to take it any further, simply because Ian Fleming, uh, for most historians, is, um, well, a minefield, to be honest with you. It's kind of like walking into a minefield when you, when you deal with a character as famous as Fleming. Because, you know, for so many years, we know Fleming through Bond, and a lot of times people mistake uh, mistake him for being Bond. And I think that was one of the big challenges I had as a historian right away, was to try to figure out who the real Fleming was from 39 to 42. He's an enigma in and of himself. You got it, without a doubt. Um, he was a fascinating character. And I mean, a lot of people believe he was an agent like Bond in the field. There was no truth to that whatsoever. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, well, that was the fascinating thing. I mean, essentially, he was the, well, the way that some people in the British, uh, in British government, like to portray him, is nothing more than a faceless bureaucrat, an opportunist who ended up, you know, going out to sea on the Dieppe raid to basically act as an observer um, to watch his new commando unit go into action. And when I was looking, you know, doing my research on him, I realized he was anything but. He certainly wasn't a superhero, but at the same time, he was anything but a faceless bureaucrat. He was actually the personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence, John Godfrey, which means he was his hatchet man, his go-to guy, his fixer. Anything that needed to be done that may have been ruthless or Machiavellian or required a certain panache and creative ability, that was Fleming's, you know, bailiwick. In other words, Fleming wasn't beyond treating humans as cannon fodder. Well, yes. I mean, he would. I mean, he was notorious for that. I mean, it was part of his makeup. I mean, he, in a certain situation, he would see the objective, and it really wouldn't matter how he got, you know, got it done. And that is something that comes through in pretty much all his dealings in the Second World War. I mean, this is a guy who had his finger in the pie of almost every intelligence operation going on, not just with naval intelligence, but with MI5, MI6, um, you know, at Bletchley Park. He was responsible for the pinch portfolio for the first couple of years of the war. At any point, David, did the trail lead back to, I mentioned um, my, my Follow the Truth event happening in Oshawa. Did, did, at mm. any point did your trail... Uh, lead back to Camp X, the infamous Camp X in Oshawa. Well, not really in a direct way. Indirectly, it was all part of the same circuit. Of course, you know they had the Hydra operation that was at Camp X, and this was relaying the fruits of Ultra, in other words, the cryptography right around the world. And then this was an incredible network. I mean, people tend to forget that by the end of the war, there were about 10,000 people involved with Bletchley Park and the SIGINT operations just in Great Britain. 
and then you add the Americans and the Canadians involved, and you've got a massive factory of intelligence and an incredible network. And the the camp that you refer to, Camp X in uh, Oshawa, had a major relay signal station. And as far as we know, there's no evidence to suggest they were doing any cryptography there. But at the same time, they were relaying the essential information to and from the front. Although it is, it is. Can you confirm that Fleming did spend some time at Camp X? Well, unfortunately, I can't. Hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, we know he was in North America. There's rumors that he was at the camp, and those rumors tend to, again, I think, transcend into the Bond mystique. Yes, in other words, indeed. He trained there. He may have, you know killed somebody there or failed to kill somebody there. But there's no evidence in 150,000 pages I went through to suggest he was ever there to train, let All alone right. there. There's your assignment for your next book, David. There's your assignment for your next book. Liz, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. I want to find out more about Rear Admiral John Godfrey, no sometimes cited as the inspiration for 007's boss, M, played with great panache by Judy Dench. <laughs> we'll come back and continue to discuss... David O'Keefe's book, One Day in August. Did you get the tea? I get mine every month delivered to my door. A pouch of fragrant Formula 13 pomegranate cleansing tea from GetTheTea.com. Two bags of this amazing herbal, non-GMO, organic tea are brewed and then placed in the fridge to steep. Two bags make two gallons, and I drink a tall 16-ounce glass every morning. I feel refreshed, energized, and clean from the inside out. Did I mention that all the tea at GetTheTea.com is caffeine-free? Order yours today from GetTheTea.com and discover what everyone is raving about. Use the code word UNLIMITED. And all your orders ship for free. Life Change Tea and Formula 13 teas are not available in any store. It's time to get on board and get your tea from GetTheTea.com. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. David O'Keefe joins us from Montreal, remains with us a few moments yet, talking about One Day in August, the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe. Uh, this is really rewriting history because although Dieppe was a military disaster, ended in a tragic loss of life, staggering loss of life, gave the Nazis a propaganda victory. The real purpose of that, the real purpose of that uh, operation was, in fact, the retrieval of the Enigma Code, uh, one of many attempts at retrieving the Enigma Code. Uh, so back to Rear Admiral John Godfrey, again, sometimes mm -hmm. cited as the inspiration for 007's boss M in the James Bond series. Uh, this was not his sort of first... Uh, crazy cockamamie scheme, was it? Well, no. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, Godfrey, who was a fascinating character to start with, you know, career Royal Navy officer, and then in 1939 became director of naval intelligence. There was a lot to him that um, he, w he was basically trying to rebuild an intelligence empire that had been taken away from naval intelligence at the end of World War One. And part of it, um, or in an attempt to do this, was indeed to make sure that he kept his finger and his pulse on Enigma, 
cryptography. But there were a lot of other schemes that went on starting from 1939 onward, in particular 1940, where both Fleming and Godfrey um, came up with, and particularly Fleming, came up with this operation called Ruthless, which was really remarkable. And uh, for most historians, um, they always thought that this was just simply a flight of Fleming fancy, if you will, uh, that never got off the ground. And the idea was to, very simply, was to dress up a, a commando unit like a German bomber crew, fly a captured German bomber over the English Channel, find a ship that may be carrying the kind of material that they needed, fake an emergency landing, and then pull a Trojan horseplay. And so, in other words, when the rescue craft comes out, jump on, seize the crew, seize the machine that you're looking for or the code books, and then kill the crew to cover it up. And the remarkable part was that when I started this journey and came across this, I assumed, like most of the Fleming biographers, that this never came to fruition. But in reality, it did, and it came off twice, but it came up empty twice. But that's a fascinating um, indictment, if you will, or perhaps uh, an example of the lengths that naval intelligence, not just naval intelligence, but also the, Ar the Air Force and the Navy were willing to go to to get this kind of material. Was Godfrey and, by extension, Ian Fleming, were they a little bit the bumblers? Well, I think all this was new. I mean, they are experimenting. I mean, right from 1939 up until 42, when Dieppe happens, they're essentially experimenting with ways of capturing this material and getting away with it. And so as a result, they're pushing the envelope, without a doubt. And one of the big problems is leading up to Dieppe, they never have a setback, or at least not a major setback, to, to check them. So there's a growing arrogance, a growing hubris, a victory disease that's setting in. In other words, look, we've been successful doing this up in Norway. Why not take it you know, across the channel? Why not enlarge it? So not only do we have commando units you know, hitting the main harbor, but now they're adding extra commando units on the wings to take out uh, you know, two naval batteries and perhaps find some stuff there. So they're getting, um, yeah, part of it is, I guess you could say, bumbling, but within the, the context of experimenting and pushing the envelope. Had Dieppe uh, gone off as planned, mm -hmm. had it had been a success, and the retrieval of the encrypted material were it, were it successful, what would it have meant to the war? Effort. What's, I mean, well, would it have ended quickly? Well, that's a good question. I mean, that's an incredible counterfactual question. What if? Um, most historians believe that having something like Ultra, the ability to read your enemy's communications, shaved at least a year, if not two years, off the entire war and saved millions of lives. Um, had Dieppe actually come off, it would have given them probably an extra four to five months. In other words, it was only in late December when they start, when they actually broke through uh, the four rotor enigma. And if they would have done that in August, then I, it would be very difficult to calculate. But without a doubt, the war likely would have been shortened. And would have saved perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. Could very well. Why... Why keep this a secret for so long? I mean, especially for veterans and their families, who many of them who went to their grave thinking it was pointless. Mm. Well, that's the, that's the tragedy. That's one of that's 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 a huge tragedy. It is. It is, and I think there's a couple of reasons. 
first of all, Ultra, when these men like Fleming, Godfrey, Mountbatten were indoctrinated, in other words, they were read the riot act of what to do, what not to do, and signed the Official Secrets Act, they were told that this would never be revealed. And essentially, the existence of Ultra remained classified until the late 1970s, when finally the British admitted that, yes, without a doubt, we were doing this. But then it's taken almost another 30 years for them, or more than 30 years, for them to actually start to release all this material. And when I approached GCHQ and asked them, I said, look, why is it taking so long? And they said, well, we're starting to, you know, uh, release material on the operations, etc. And they said, now we're going to release it. Uh, part of it was they didn't want to release it all in one chunk because they were afraid this would draw attention to it. And so as a result, they wanted to release it in a very protracted and controlled way. Why? Why, why not draw attention to it? Well, they didn't really want to, I think, probably because they didn't want anybody sort of poking around into sort of the Machiavellian intent, if you will, behind these operations, the ruthless nature. In other words, what they were willing to go to to achieve these objectives, which in some cases, you know, really walk the fine line, you know, uh, uh, of war crimes. Um, sure, but not, we, not we, we, know, we know from history, I mean, that this was... You know, using humans as cannon fodder was, uh, it was just standard operating procedure, certainly in the First World War. Well, it certainly was in World War II as well. I mean, when you think of, you know, all the men who have died taking a, you know, a, a hill in the middle of nowhere, or, you know, being lost in a bombing raid over Germany, um, you know, certainly, and I, I, I'm very hesitant to say that their lives were worth it at Dieppe or the deaths were worth it at Dieppe, but certainly given you know, some of the other reasons why, how you could lose your life uh, during war, certainly this one probably had you know, more merit than others. Well, it does now, thanks to mm -hmm. you, David, because now uh, it is, uh, instead of being associated with futility, uh, now it takes on this tremendous... You know, heroic effort. I mean, there's no question that regardless of why they were there, these men were heroes. But now the operation, um, it, it, it has context. It has mm. purpose. And had it been successful, you know, it was, mm. it would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. It, it changes well. every, it yeah. changes everything, David. Well, it's funny because I'm really torn about that. You know, you, you, you take a look at this and you wonder why. You know, why did they need to go to this extreme? And somebody has asked me on many occasions, or I've been asked on many occasions, you know, was it worth it? And, you know, certainly there was an altruistic intent, and it certainly was worth it in that sense to pull off something like this. But I don't know if it necessarily was worth the cost at the end because, you know, surely there had to be a better method of pulling something like this off. How is the book now uh, being received by uh, by veterans? Um, veterans are, are, to be honest with you, blown away by it. I mean, this is something that they didn't expect. And, and mind you, there are only a few of them left, um, you know, probably less than about maybe 50 to 100 now. I mean, we're 72 years after, 73 years after the event. So there are very few of them. But for the ones who have read it um, and seen the new evidence, I mean, they are profoundly changed. And that was something I had to, um, I really had to watch out for as a historian, because to be honest with you, this was the first time that I really was confronted with the power of history and the power of the truth. And uh, I tell you, after meeting some of the veterans, I made sure I went back and crossed my T's and dotted my I's on my, uh, on my research, because I realized just how powerful this was going to be. Uh 
And do you ha- do you hope that there will be some perhaps uh, assurances that when going forward, uh, Dieppe is is taught in in the in the schools? And I quite frankly, I don't even know if it is, and that would be a, it would be a, mm. a colossal shame if it is not. But that that the 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 historical record will be now changed to reflect your your findings. Well, certainly, I hope that the you know the historical record will change to respect not just the findings but the evidence, and that's really the key. You know, there was a lot of new evidence that has come out, and it's caught, I think, the historical community off guard um, simply because it took so long to come out, and also too, it came out in such an overwhelming way. I never really expected that it was going to take so long, let alone 150,000 pages uh, to do it, and then you know, at the end of the day, come out with significantly new evidence that completely changes our understanding of the operation is, um, you know, it's really moving at light speed when it comes to the historical community. Uh, So, you know, eventually it will get there. But I think it's right now it's kind of a culture shock, if you will. Sure. Would it be too much, do you think, to ask that uh, a a standing member uh, of the uh, Canadian, you know, Ministry of Defense, perhaps the cabinet Minister responsible for defense might at one point stand up in the house and and address this issue. Put it on the record officially. Well, it would be great. Yeah, I mean, I certainly have no issues with that. Um, I just hope it's you know I hope it's done in the proper way. David, congratulations! Uh, it's Thank you. it's it's not only uh, you know the the evidence and the investigation is is thorough, but it's it's well written. I mean, it's a real page turner, uh, mm-hmm. and you know that's a real accomplishment. Obviously, you, making history come to life uh, is is always a difficult task, and you've done it brilliantly. Well, thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. One tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo helps keep me pain-free, energized, and mentally focused. And I'm sleeping so much better since I started taking ESS-60 back in November. ESS-60 is the consumable form of C60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize-winning chemists in the 1990s. ESS-60 is a mega antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Check out the Paris study, a peer-reviewed scientific study online, where ESS-60 suspended in olive oil was fed to rats. The rats fed ESS-60 lived almost twice their normal lifespan. I can't sit here and tell you I'm going to live to be 112, but I'm 56 and I haven't felt this youthful, energized, and pain-free since I was in my 20s. ESS-60 from C60 Evo. If you want to discover the benefits of this amazing miracle molecule for yourself, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link for c60evo.com. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC when ordering, and you'll receive an additional 5% 5% off. ESS60, the miracle molecule from C60 Evo. It's changed my life. Discover what it can do for you. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, preparing for the artificial intelligence revolution. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. 
new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.